If you thought the housing bubble was bad, wait until you hear this. Hey, welcome to the New Deal, next episode in the Student Loan Crisis series. If you are going to watch any episode in this series, it should be this one. We're going to take a look at the predatory lending practices that led to the crisis, how far-reaching some of those scams are and were, and continue to be today. Uh, but first, if you like the New Deal, if you like the videos, if you like the podcast, hit the subscribe button below, hit like on the podcast, please rate the podcast. I would appreciate it. You can also check out the New Deal on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can go to the newdeal.com and check out the blog there. And you can head on over to Twitch where I'm prepping a channel so that I can go live and podcast live and uh, play some games and talk politics with you guys. So head on over to Twitch and find the New Deal over on Twitch. This is a important episode. It's going to be a little bit long. So I want to get right into it, but every bit of it is important. So here we go. What is predatory lending? Uh, from Investopedia, predatory lending typically refers to lending uh, practices that impose unfair and abusive loan terms on borrowers. We saw this in the 2008 mortgage crisis, mainly through a tool called subprime loans, and there was a lot that was going on in the background. Uh, but predatory lending was the main cause of the 2008 uh, recession that you know affected us, you know, well through you know 2015, 2016. Uh, what is a subprime loan? A subprime loan is a type of loan offered uh, at a rate above prime to individuals who do not qualify for prime rate loans, uh, many times to people who wouldn't have qualified for a loan in the first place. In other words, uh, they're bad loans. They're crap loans. They have high chances to fail. Remember subprime loans. The difference between the student loan crisis and the housing crisis from 2008 is that in 2008, the money ran out for the banks. Uh, they made the bad loans and then people couldn't pay them back. And because they weren't getting their money back, um, and that was happening nationwide, the investments on those loans failed and people went bankrupt, businesses closed. I mean, th there was no money. However, many student loans are government backed. Uh, and here's how that works. So company A, uh, often a private company, will contract with the government to service and originate federal loans. Essentially, uh, the government says, hey, uh, company A, uh, we want you to give out uh, federal student loans, uh, use your money, uh, your terms, you know, your fees, and then once you make the loan, we'll back up that loan with our money. So the other protection here, though, is that if the borrower does not pay the company, the company still gets the money from the government. So basically, the government is insuring these loans even if private companies are lending them. Now, we have federal loans and we have private loans and we need to distinguish between the two. So federal loans, that's money borrowed from the government. It doesn't matter whether the federal loan is giving to the student directly or whether that loan is going through a company like Sally May, who is distributing the government funding, essentially, it's still a federal loan. A private loan is essentially a bank loan. So companies like Sally May and Discover and Wells Fargo, they'll offer private loans, um, but it's their money. It's their risk. Oftentimes, these loans have higher interest rates, stricter terms on them. But the key is that they are not government backed. They are not government insured. The money being given in a private loan is the company's money. So let's go over a few things about federal loans. Federal loans are obtained by filling out the FAFSA. 
Um, and this is a tool that students and their parents can use. They fill it out. They send it to their school that they want to go to, uh, usually with tax information. And the school looks it over and determines whether or not they are eligible for funding, whether it's grants, scholarships, or federal loans. Typical rates on these range from like three and a half to 6%. They were lower during the recession of 2008 to 2016 under Obama. They kept them about 2%. I actually don't know if they've come up too much far above that to try to help everybody out. However, these loans are capped at $31,000. So if a student needs more than $31,000 to go to school, or if they don't qualify for the maximum amount, they often have to rely on private loans to bridge the gap, to make up the difference. Federal loans offer many flexible repayment options um, from a traditional loan structure, you know, pay X amount over 15 years um, to graduated payments where, you know, you get out of school and then for the life of the loan, your monthly payment goes up gradually, assuming that you'll, you know, they make the assumption that you'll, you'll do better with time. Um, so the payments will go up with time. Then we've got income-based repayment plans, which were kind of newer, um, also kind of a product of the, the recession. But basically, you know, you won't be charged more than 10% of your income for your monthly payment. That way you can afford it. You can be making payments or ruin your credit. Really good repayment option there. Some federal loans can also be forgiven if the borrower has done 10 years of public service. If they've done 10 years of public service and over those 10 years they've made all of their payments, they can apply for federal loan forgiveness. And we'll get to this a little bit later. Remember this for later. Remember that's a thing that can happen. Federal funds are often made uh, through private companies or federal loans are made through private companies um, who originate them, service them, and collect those funds, which will lead me to private loans. So private loans are often used to bridge the gap between uh, what a student gets in federal loans and what they owe in tuition. 37% of students in 2018 did not even fill out a FAFSA, so they didn't even try to get federal funding. 37% of students, which means that they likely either didn't know about the federal funding or more likely they were taking private loans. They were not getting federal loans. Unlike federal loans, there's no cap on the loans you can take. There's also no cap on the interest rate that, that they'll give you, um, and, and we'll get to that in a minute as well. And you have two types of interest. You have, you have fixed interest and you have variable interest. So there are different methods in which private companies can lend that you don't usually see in federal lending. Unlike federal loans, a private loan company can find you or place you in default, which means that you failed to make payments. They can place you in default after one missed payment. Federal loans, you won't go into default until after nine missed payments. When a loan goes into a default, the loan provider, whether it's the government or the private loan uh, company, they can garnish your wages, which means that they can take money from your paycheck. They can take your tax return. Uh, they can look, take some of your other assets so that you essentially pay them back. Unlike a mortgage or an auto loan, there is no repossession because they can't repossess your degree, so they just start taking your assets. So those are private loans. It is really important to understand the link between federal government funds and private loan companies and how the federal funding and the private companies work together to get federal funds to students. So here's just a brief history. In 1965, President Johnson passed the Higher Education Act of 1965, and this just basically opened up federal dollars to give to students to go to school. It, for the first time, really allowed Americans who couldn't afford college out of their own pocket to go to school. And these were Federal, federal loans, but they didn't work in quite the same way. 
and I'll get to that in just a second. President Nixon expanded that program initiated by President Johnson, and he created the Student Loan Marketing Association, SLMA, or Sally May. Sally May was a quasi-government entity. It was basically, it had some private piece to it, but the president put three members on its board. It was heavily government uh, regulated by the government, and it couldn't actually give out its own funds for loans. It would, a bank would give out a loan with its own money. So let's say your, your local bank, Bank of America gives you a loan for X amount of dollars. Then Sally Mae would buy that loan from Bank of America, insuring the money so that you know Bank of America would not be at a loss even if the student could not pay the money back. As you can see, this could get a little complicated. So in 1992, Bill Clinton decided, I wanna cut out the middleman. Let's have the government lend directly to students. And he called this the direct lending program. So this put Sally May and banks especially at a disadvantage because the federal government could offer interest rates that were well below what the banks and, and Sally May you know, were able to back or offer. And further, the government doesn't need to turn a profit. So some people in government, uh, namely Republicans, were not happy with this direct lending program. And in 1994, Republicans gained control in Congress and they said, we're gonna take away direct lending. And of course, Bill Clinton wanted to keep direct lending. So they reached a compromise. The Republicans said, Bill, you can keep your direct lending program if we can privatize Sally Mae. And Sally Mae was privatized. So before being privatized, remember, Sally Mae could not loan out their own money. Uh, now that they could, uh, now that they were private, they could lend out their own money. They could create private loans. They could also originate federal loans. And as a private company with very little government oversight, they could also charge fees, change interest rates, uh, charge origination fees, late payment. There was money to be made in a private Sally May. And we'll get to more on that later. So how was any of this lending predatory? What was the predatory lending? Just to lend some credence to the argument up front, there are currently multiple lawsuits uh, on the national level that are advocating for students who were taken advantage of and then also put at a disadvantage when it came to being able to repay their loans. Some of these things, um, some of the conditions involved in the lawsuit or some of what is being alleged is that lenders often charge price origination fees, uh, tacked on more fees that weren't necessary. Um, if borrowers requested things like forbearance or deferment, they would say, okay, we'll give you that relief. We'll allow you to delay your payment, but you need to pay us for that delay, even though you can't afford your regular payment. These companies would harass borrowers, often, often uh, calling them at late hours, uh, harassing them, threatening uh, jail time, strangely enough. Uh, they were garnishing wages very quickly. They didn't disclose viable repayment options to a student. So if a student called and said, hey, I'm having trouble paying, the loan company would be like, oh, well, can't really do much for you when there were like nine options for that borrower that the company just didn't disclose. And further, sometimes these companies just flat out ignored the borrower, did, did not return their call, did not return communications. They essentially walked them into default. So that's what the lawsuits are. So let's get into kind of the nitty gritty of, of what students went through start to finish. I want to start with the repayment issue. Much of this happened, much of what we're talking about happened prior to and through the 2008 financial crisis and recession. 
at that time, uh, 2010, 2011, unemployment was up at 10%. It was higher in some states. So there were limited jobs. Students were graduating college into an economy with a 10% unemployment rate, and depending on your state, higher than that. So the following items I'm going to talk about are particularly egregious. The first thing is variable interest rates. These were offered primarily on private student loans. A variable interest rate just means that the interest rate on your loan can move up or down, depending on multiple factors. Then we have deferred borrowing, which plays a factor. Deferred borrowing means I take out a loan and I don't need to pay it while I'm in school. And maybe there's even a six month grace period after I graduate where I don't need to pay back that loan. And this is supposed to help the student in theory, but it can also have a negative impact given certain circumstances, which we'll get to in a second. Simple interest is just your normal interest. Uh, it comes off your balance and your balance only. So if I take out a loan for $100, my interest will only ever come off my balance of $100 or whatever I pay off from the balance. Interest will never be added to my balance. So, you know, my, my, my balance will not, or my, you know, my, my balance won't grow. My interest can grow, but my balance won't grow. But then we have compound interest. And compound interest is when interest that's accrued is added to your loan balance. And then the interest that is accrued after that is taken off that combined balance plus interest. Therefore, increasing the amount of interest that can build. Uh, for example, if I have $1,000 and a 10% interest rate uh, over a year, at the end of year one, there'll be my $1,000 balance, assuming I haven't made any payments, and there'll be $100 in interest. So now the total is $1,100. Okay, $1,100. But in year two, I still have a 10% interest rate, but now my balance plus interest is $1,100. So that year, the tax or the interest I'm going to owe is $110, which means that the balance goes up to $1,210 and so on and so forth. So over years, especially if we're talking tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, we're talking about interest and balances growing at exponential rates. And this is what buried a lot of people. So remember that. And then we have capitalized interest. Uh, capitalized interest is when a company says, okay, you've got your interest over here in this, this area and you've got your balance over here and they're supposed to stay separate, but you've requested a, defer, a deferment or forbearance. You've requested a delay or you've gone into default. Upon asking for one of those relief options, and unbeknownst to a lot of borrowers, the loan company would then capitalize your interest, which means that they would then add all of your accrued interest to your balance at that time, even though you know, compound interest was not part of your loan agreement. This is where that initial deferment comes in because this is what happened to me. I went through school for four years. I had four years of private loans. When I graduated, there were no jobs. I called, I asked for forbearance. They said, okay, pay us $150. You don't have to pay for three months. Okay. And what was not disclosed to me was that when I did that, four and a half years of accrued interest on my loan were then added to my balance. And then all the interest that accrued thereafter was off that combined balance. And it put me and many other people in a hole. Now, what I'm talking about here, this mostly boils down to bad customer service um, that largely affects uh, borrowers in smaller ways and in, in, in mathematical ways, I guess, but we're not even close to the worst part of this. We're not even close. So here's where things get evil. And we're just going to kind 
kind of take this methodically. The priority for schools is to maximize their enrollment. They get more money if they get more students. They get a better reputation if they have more students and produce better students. And remember that students are a product. So when a student graduates and they become a high profile graduate of a school, people say, oh, they went to that school. Students are advertisements for schools. Students are product. So the priority for schools is to maximize their enrollment. Interesting tidbit, which I didn't know before I, I started researching this. Only 90% of a school's funding through tuition can come from federal funding, federal loans. The other 10% must be private funding, whether it's cash or private loans. For instance, if I'm a school and I only have $1,000 in private payment being paid through tuition, that means I can only get $9,000 in student loans. But if I have $10,000 in private money, I can now make $90,000 on federal loans. And remember, those loans are guaranteed. They're insured. So it is the school's interest to make sure that they are getting some private money. And remember from another episode, three types of schools. We've got your public schools, state-owned. Uh, then we've got your private nonprofit. This is Harvard, Yale, schools like that. And then we've got your for-profit schools like University of Phoenix, Capella, um, schools like that. Now, the real money for loan companies is in the federal loans because their losses are insured. So they get origination fees, they get the interest rates, and if the loan isn't paid back, no big deal because the government has already guaranteed the loan. So they want more private loans. But remember, if there isn't enough private money going to schools, the schools can accept more federal funding. So loan companies want federal loans. Schools want private money. So private companies like Sally Mae, who offer private loans, can give the schools the private money. And if the schools can get private money, then they can take more federal funding, which means that Sally Mae can issue more federal loans. They can help each other, but they do more than that. They do so much more than that. Obviously, there's a limited number of students or parents who are applying for college or can pay for college for, for a number of reasons. You, first, there's you know, how many people are, are of age and interested in doing that. But then there's how many parents have good credit. How many students have good credit? There's a, there's a finite pool. There's an entire you know, group of kids, 17, 18-year-olds and adults, who, who simply can't afford to go to school. They want to go to school, but they can't get the funding. Enter the subprime loan. Private companies like Sally Mae start offering loans to people who don't have good credit and who can't afford it. These loans are likely to fail. Why would they take that risk? Why would they say, hey, we know you can't pay this loan back, but we're, we're going to give it to you anyway. Why would they take that risk? Why would they put their business in peril? Just like banks were making money on subprime loans in the mortgage crisis and Wall Street was betting on those loans like a sports book, remember, Sally Mae had insurance on federal loans. So in effect, they could afford to take risk on private loans because their federal loans were insured. Schools needed the private funds to meet the, the federal threshold or to increase their federal threshold. So the schools and Sally Mae would team up, and the way that they would help each other out is Sally Mae would offer these subprime loans to students who otherwise wouldn't have gone to school, which means that these students who should not have been in the pool are now enrolling in school with private money. And the schools can then accept more federal money, and so Sally Mae can offer more federal loans. How bad was that? That sounds like 
weird, skeevy American capitalism, the kind that we're used to. But how bad was that? Many schools, public, private, and for-profit, across the board, made deals with loan companies similar to this. A 2007 investigation by the New York Attorney General called these types of arrangements an unholy alliance between the schools and the loan companies. The same investigation found that for-profit schools in particular were targeting low-income, minority kids, and homeless kids, and trying to convince them to take out these loans to enroll in their schools under the guise that they would get degrees that led to high-paying careers, which never materialized. And when I say homeless kids, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, they targeted homeless kids and gave them loans that they couldn't afford to go to school to get a degree that was not worth anything. One student described getting their loan, their private loan, as being as easy as signing up for iTunes. And this is a multiple thousand or tens of thousand dollar loan debt that you're taking on, as easy as signing up for iTunes. These loans were doomed to fail. I I said this a few episodes ago, and we need to remember this term. These loans were made to fail. And this scheme ran deep. That aggressive marketing um, that I mentioned earlier that Sally May, you know, wanted to use. Financial aid officers were found to be taking bribes, receiving kickbacks, stock options, luxury vacations, and other rewards for steering students at schools to Sally Mae and companies like Sally Mae. Because it wasn't just Sally Mae doing this, it was other private companies as well. In the case of Sally Mae, and and I I meant to get to this earlier, when Sally Mae privatized, their biggest competitor was the government, who was still offering those really low interest rates and had no need to make a profit. So Sally Mae decided they were going to get rid of the competition. Sally Mae went out and through an extremely aggressive marketing campaign, decided they were going to get into schools. They wanted to be the official lender for schools. In one case, they paid a school $15 million to become the official lender for that school. They would then take Sally Mae employees and place them in the financial aid offices at those schools. So you had Sally Mae employees working at schools in the financial aid office, which means when I call my school to talk to a financial aid officer, let's say I'm going to uh, UConn, for instance, and I, hey, UConn, I want to come to your school. Uh, I'm looking for financial aid. I might not be talking to a Yukon financial aid officer. I'm talking to a Sally Mae employee. And that employee is going to try to give me either a federal loan from Sally Mae, or if it suits them and they can get me to pay the higher interest rates, they'll give me a private loan. But I'm not talking to the Yukon financial advisor. I'm talking to a Sally Mae representative. And in many cases, it was not disclosed who you were speaking to on the phone. It was intentional uh, kind of misdirection. Uh, without saying anything. From the LA Times, quote, uh, the students think it's, it's an investment in their future, being in their education, and the colleges are willing to let them borrow heavily because it helps them fill their enrollment. Loans are essential to enrollment. About the confusing, you know, how they confused. Another quote, the financial aid officer just said that my federal loans were enough to pay the tuition, but that was okay because they had these great alternative loans. They made it sound so good that I didn't ask any questions. Another financial aid officer told a student, don't worry about the debt. You're getting a law degree. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It, 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 It's being a car car salesman. It's being a car salesman. And these are people talking to kids. These are 17, 18-year-old kids in most cases. Also from the LA Times story, and all these stories can be found down in the links. Check out the sources there. 
depressing. Um, Sally May purposefully sent disclosure forms uh, to students months after school started. What's a disclosure form? Disclosure forms have your interest rate on them, the total loan balance, your amortization rate, all the information that is really important when you're taking out a loan. How could they do this? Because, because student loans are the only loans where it is not legal or it's not legally required for the lender to provide that information before you sign the dotted line. If you're taking out a mortgage, that you need to know that information before you sign, by law. Okay, auto loan, same thing, but a student loan, if we're lending to 17 and 18 year olds, why do they need that information? We don't need to give that to them. Let them start school before we give them that information so that they'll be stuck. They'll already have taken classes. Now they need the funding and they're stuck. Common practice. Some sets of these loans, these private student loans, defaulted, failed at rates between 50 and 92% from the year 2000 to 2007. For seven straight years, more than half of these loans did not get paid back. And despite that, Sally May increased the number of borrowers with subprime loans from 165, 165 borrowers in the year of 2000 to 43,000 borrowers in 2006, an increase of 26,000% in six years, despite, despite half the loans not being paid back. Why is a loan company, how is a loan company, could you take such huge losses? How is that possible? It's possible because it wasn't just the bribery of a few loan officers taking some kickbacks, you know, in the financial aid office, you know, steering business to Sally Mae. That's not enough. As I mentioned, for-profit schools and parent companies, because some, some companies own multiple for-profit schools, they're, they're, you know, umbrella companies, they would make deals. These for-profit schools would make deals with the lenders, not partnerships, deals, deals. From the New York Times, a group called the Career Education Corporation, one of the largest for-profit chains at the time, had a typical arrangement with Sally Mae. From 2002 to 2006, it agreed to pay 20% of Sally Mae's losses. In 2007, they increased that subsidy to 25%. The for-profit schools were also insuring the loan company so that they would continue to offer these subprime loans to students so they could get their enrollment numbers up because then Sally Mae could also offer more federal loans. And guess what? Their private loans were insured 25%. It's, it's, in an, it's, it's an entire scheme. Top to bottom, complete collusion, complete. One company, one company analyst at one of these, these umbrella companies was heard to, be, to have said on a meeting that they should be willing to take more of a loss on some of the students to get them in the door. Essentially, we should be paying the loan companies more money. We should pay them more just to get these kids in the door. It's worth it to us. From 2010 to 2013, in the peak of these lending practices, when, when this was happening you know, en masse, Sally Mae made a $3.1 billion profit. So here's the rundown. We'll put it up right on the side here. Here's the rundown. Maybe I'll put it over. Number one, the goal for schools is to maximize enrollment and get as much private funding as possible so that they can increase the amount of government funds that they can accept since most students qualify for federal funding. Private loan companies want to issue more federal loans since those loans are insured by the government and they're willing to 
give out more subprime private loans, especially, in order to increase the amount of federal loans that they can give out. In order to issue more private loans, they give the subprime loans. Loans designed to fail, to students who never should have had those loans in the first place to get more students in the door. Remember, some of these failed 92% of the time. Then the companies, the loan companies, give kickbacks, stock options, luxury vacations to financial advisors that they have planted in schools. And those advisors intentionally confuse borrowers as to who they're talking to, what type of loan they're taking out, what their interest rates are. And then to incentivize the loan companies to provide more private money, understanding that the private companies were taking a loss on these loans, the for-profit schools paid up to 25% of the losses for the lenders so they could increase their enrollment. And then these loan companies, they paid off the advisors, and then they together targeted specifically minority kids, uh, kids who didn't have enough credit to go to school, and homeless kids. Targeted. Targeted campaign. Think about the level of planning and manipulation that has been described. We're talking about loan companies taking federal money and giving that money to students in order to get them to schools so that they can essentially exploit the federal money for the insurance. And because the schools need federal money, money to be capped, you know, no higher than 90%, then they are exploiting the government money because they, they want to expand the pool because it's, it's guaranteed, it gets more kids in the door. And now they're paying off the lenders to give bad loans to students so that they'll enroll in the school so that the federal funding can be increased. At its core, all this is, is, is exploiting the government money, saying that money's insured, these loans are insured, we want that because we're safe, give us that money through any means necessary. We'll pay schools millions of dollars in order to get them. You hear a lot of people say, you know, the kids should have known better than to take out these loans. And, 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 and I would ask everybody to think, how could they have known better when the loan company was targeting them lying to them, when the people in the financial aid offices were giving them false information, when the schools that they were going to were selling them false promises of degrees that were essentially worthless just to increase enrollment and profit, and then giving them loans with terrible, terrible rates to do it. Some of the interest rates on these variable loans that went up and down that I said screwed people earlier went as high as 20%. You could start out with a 4% interest rate on these loans, and it could go to 20. You can't pay that back. You can't make it up. It's impossible. How did they have a chance? And it's not over. It's not over. Under the Obama administration, a program was started where if you had federal funding, federal loans, uh, and you did 10 years of public service after those 10 years, and assuming that you had made 10 years of payments consistently, your loans can be forgiven. Also under the Obama administration, something called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was founded to protect all consumers in America from predatory practices or being exploited. And the purview of the student loan industry came under the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. And the CFPB had a sharing agreement with the Department of Education, who essentially gave out these loans. Um, they, they oversaw the loan process so that if a lender was getting a lot of complaints, the CFPB would be notified, the CFPB would notify the Department of Education, and then a determination could be made as to why it's happening, how to improve it, and whether or not to continue contracts with that company. All sounds good, right? In 2017, Betsy DeVos, the new Secretary of Education, she ended the sharing agreement without a reason. Well, maybe there's one reason. The largest provider of federal loans is the Pennsylvania 
Higher Education Assistance Agency, P-H-E-A-A, which operates under the name FedLoan Servicing. I'm going to call it FedLoan to make it easier for all of us. In 2019, they made $201 million in profit off loan servicing alone, just servicing alone, $201 million. Between 2017 and 2019, Betsy DeVos cut ties with the CFPB in the, uh, after she cut ties with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. She wasn't get, hearing about any of those complaints anymore. The CFPB received 3,000 complaints on this company. 3,000 complaints, but there's no sharing agreement. So the Department of Education, they just don't know about the complaints, right? The borrower said that when they called, they couldn't get a straight answer to get them qualified for their loan forgiveness. They'd done the 10 years public service, they'd made the, the payments, but they had to prove it. And in trying to prove it, they couldn't, they couldn't get straight answers, they couldn't get through to people, they, they're called to be ignored. And so you had this group of people who had done their time essentially, given their time to their country, qualified for the loan forgiveness, made the payments, and their debt is still piling up. They're still having to make these payments. So Congress catches wind that there's these complaints in Congress of all entities, says, okay, that's not fair. Here's $700 million, Department of Education, to take care of any of those people who are making a good faith effort to prove that they qualify for this. Let's use this money to forgive those loans. And Betsy DeVos says, okay. And then she turns around to the borrowers and says, borrowers, I know that you're having a tough time getting through, but what I want you to do is I want you to go online. I want you to apply to this program anyway, even though you're being told that you might not qualify. I want you to go apply for this program. And once you do that, then we'll, we'll work out the, the money with the 700 million. And of course, when they applied, they were rejected. And that process alone, that little maneuver was responsible for 71% of all the rejections for this program. Only 27 million of the $700 million that was allotted by Congress to help these students was actually paid out. 27 million out of 700 million. Now, these complaints were only falling on the CFPB. The states got wind of it. And the states said, okay, well, it's not okay for these lenders to be doing this. We're going to go after the lenders. We need to protect our state citizens who are being exploited. And Betsy DeVos said, well, you can't do that because the states have no authority over federal loans. And they said, so states can't do anything about it. Too bad. Interestingly enough, in 2018, Mick Mulvaney was the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Who's Mick Mulvaney? From 2019 to 2020, Mick Mulvaney was Donald Trump's chief of staff. And as the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, he didn't do anything about this. He didn't push the issue. He didn't forward the complaints. He just sat back and let it go. This is just over, this is just a few years ago, a year or two ago, and it's still ongoing. It's in the news today. One notable thing is that the CFPB hired someone for their student loan office, their federal student loan office. Um, and this office is supposed to have oversight from the CFPB's perspective for, for the loans, for fielding these complaints. And that person who took that office was a, name, uh, a man named Robert Cameron. And Robert Cameron uh, was a former executive for FedLoan, the biggest provider of federal loans in America under immense scrutiny from borrowers making complaints to the very bureau that he just happens to work for now. All this came under fire in the courts. Um, there, there's a question as to whether the states can, can uh, challenge, you know, or have, have authority to go to court over federal loans. And actually, recently, a judge has ruled, yes, they do. And not only that, but 
multiple parties can sue at the same time. So a state can sue and the CFPB can sue if they have different interests. So loan companies may actually be held accountable maybe for their actions. And that gets back to those lawsuits earlier, which are in process. But the last thing I want to talk about is the future student loan crash. We talk about the housing crash. Now we're going to talk about the student loan crash. Um, at the beginning, I talked about how subprime loans played a large role in the 2008 crash. But another contributor in that crash was something called the mortgage-backed security. And so what that is, is the banks would take these mortgages, right? And they say, we're going to group these mortgages together into a package. And we're going to give that package a rating, AAA being the highest, most secure, risk-free. And then investors will buy the package. And then as the mortgages are paid back, the investors get the mortgage payments plus interest. So how do you feel when I tell you that there's something called a student loan asset-backed security or a slab? Like mortgages, student loans get pulled together and repackaged into little financial products, securities, and then the lenders sell them to investors. Great, right? Remember, a lot of these that are packaged up are subprime loans given to people who shouldn't qualify for them. This is a $200 billion industry in the United States, $200 billion. Um, investors receive the reward of the monthly loan payments plus interest. Um, they can hold the securities themselves, they can trade them, or they can bet against them. They can be like, that kid's going to default and I'm going to make money off it. Some people have a vested interest in students defaulting on their loans. 17 and 18-year-old kids, maybe 19, 20, 21, depending on where they're on school, were betting against kids' education for money, America. In turn, the lenders get quick cash, right? Investors give them money, um, so they get, not only do they get the investment, they get any fees associated with the investment, they get commissions associated with it. And that means that intake of money allows them to make more loans, bigger loans, riskier loans, because they're making money. Most slabs, um, most investors, um, also benefit from the government-backed insurance. 80% of the total volume of money in slabs is government-insured money, which means that if the student defaults, the investors are going to get their money anyway. They might have to wait a little while for it, but they're going to get it anyway because the government backs the loan. However, some things like slow repayment, loan forgiveness, deferments threaten the value of these investments because like any other you know, investment, they have a term. And if the value of these loans is not paid in the term, that means they're not going to get the money. Some of these could go to zero real fast through multiple ways, especially especially if there's bankruptcy reform, because as we spoke about in another episode, it's nearly impossible to get your student loan discharged through bankruptcy. But if bankruptcy is reformed and student loans can be discharged through bankruptcy, these aren't going to get paid back. So the future student loan crisis. We haven't learned anything. Um, we're betting money on teenagers and their dreams of an education. Um, they're the victims here. They're, they're the ones in debt for decades. To wrap up, 17 and 18-year-olds were targeted by schools and loan services to increase the enrollment at the schools and generate profit and to essentially exploit government funding. These kids were lied to, they were misled, they were persuaded and reassured with empty promises of success and that they'd be making enough money to pay back these loans. When they couldn't afford the payments, the companies cut them no slack, made it nearly impossible for them to pay it back reasonably, um, made them pay for deferrals, made them pay for forbearance, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't tell them about for uh, repayment options like income-based repayment or graduated repayment. And in some cases, they ignored the borrowers completely and walked them right into default. Then they harassed the borrowers, calling them at all times of night, calling their co-signers, calling their parents, 
threatening them with jail time, which couldn't happen, but threatening them with jail time, garnishing their wages, taking money from the paychecks that they already couldn't afford to pay these loans on, all while capitalizing on the interest. These schools and lenders shattered the lives of those who were looking at the promise of an education and a bright future and a career, and these companies stole that from them, stole that from them, stole them from people I know, from people my age, from an entire generation. For nearly 20 years, students have been victimized by these schemes that only benefit corporations with no thought whatsoever to the consumer or the cost of livelihood to the, to the student or the quality of their education. This is not taking candy from a baby. This is taking candy from a baby and then splitting it with this other guy and then stealing every other piece of candy that baby will ever see in their entire lives. Their entire lives. That kid is never getting candy. Ever. They will never get candy. These companies will make damn sure that the, the kid will never get candy. Even if the kid is starving to death, that kid won't get candy. We care far too little about consumers. We care far too little about these kids. We allowed our kids to be exploited and the best years of their lives were spent under this umbrella of debt and depression and continues. And then when the time comes to give them some help, when, when the idea of loan forgiveness is floated, when they see that there might be a light at the end of the tunnel, half the country screams foul because they should have known better. The next episode in the series is going to take a look at the fallout from this crisis and the very real and devastating consequences uh, that it has inflicted upon an entire generation. So that's the new day.